A really good friend of mine called me the other night, and we hadn't spoken in quite a while. And so while we were catching up, he asked me about my website, Athens Corner. And of course, me being the nerd that I am, I basically drifted off into a soliloquy about the meaning and the significance of an education in the great books. And so while I was rambling on about everything from philosophy to literature to history to theology, he finally cut me off and said, no, 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 no. I mean, what is your Athens Corner website? What's its purpose? What do you do? Now, you would think that a man who has spent months basically sweating blood, not only creating a website, but especially spending endless hours writing up very detailed notes, recording many, many hours of discussions based upon those notes, and then spending what seems like a lifetime editing those recordings so that they sound halfway intelligible, that after doing all those things, that man would have an immediate and clear answer to the question of what the purpose of the website is. But I spent at least three or four minutes stumbling around trying to provide him with what at least would sound intelligent as an answer to his very simple and very understandable question. And he cut me off again and he said, Brother, I pulled up your website, but I'm reading the about section on your website. And while it's helpful, it's still too vague for me to really know what you do on the website. But more importantly, it doesn't tell me anything about you. And so if I didn't even know who you are and had just somehow heard about you and I pulled up your website, my first impressions are something like this. It looks great and you've got all kinds of stuff there that looks really fascinating for people who are interested in things like philosophy and all that stuff you were just mentioning. But as a potential customer who would be paying you monthly for access to most of this, there's not very much there to let me know what I'm buying and also what distinguishes it, what distinguishes you from others who might be providing something similar. And especially if I think that the purpose for the website is something worth donating to support it as a project so that you could continue doing it. And of course, he's exactly right. And so that's what this is for, to provide a brief and clear statement of purpose for what it is that I do on the website in other words, its overall project for helping you decide if you want to become a subscriber and what you can expect from me as a subscriber to my website and also to let you know a little about myself. And probably that's the part that most people can relate to because even in my own life, all throughout undergrad and graduate school, the professors I enjoyed learning from the most were also the ones I really wanted to know more about their lives. In other words, their story. And so again, that's what this is for. So to begin with, the purpose of my Athens Corner website is to provide the highest quality of serious guidance and instruction in the great books of the Western tradition, which is to say the primary texts whose various legacies of influence have been the greatest and as such have defined us as who we are as a people. And so, for instance, various books of the Bible, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, Greek tragedy, Thucydides' Peloponnesian War, various Platonic dialogues, and similarly for Aristotle, and stretching all the way into the modern era with thinkers such as Hobbes, Locke, Spinoza, Descartes, and going into the postmoderns, and in particular, Nietzsche, Jünger, Heidegger, Strauss, etc. And there are two very important things to say about that. On the one hand, there's the diagnostic element that we simply have to be aware of, because it speaks directly to the immediate question of why we should even care about reading these old books. 
And the answer to that question concerns the kind of very superficial approach to the ideas in these texts that are so very common to us today because we've been led to believe, and usually through no fault of our own, that such superficial approaches to understanding the very often extremely complicated thought of these great thinkers is even possible. In other words, ours is a world presently in which the demands for instant gratification have mistakenly led us to believe that instant gratification, and in this case in the form of condensed summaries, are even possible at all when it comes to the great books. And again, this is very often through no fault of our own, because in many ways we've mistakenly been led to believe this through our education. You see this, for instance, in how very popular various books on the history of philosophy are. And you also see this in history books themselves. And the result is that very often, many students who have had otherwise very good educations in college only know as much about these great books as they learned in a chapter or two from a broad and general survey course they took in college. And a very similar result happens in schools that do teach the great books, because all too often, the professors teaching those classes simply include too many great books in a single semester course. And so the result is something like a motorcycle tour through the Louvre. And the great danger in both of those kinds of cases is that very little direct or sustained engagement with the text itself in order to truly even know what's being said is taking place because the depth of discussion about the text or the pace of the class or both simply make it impossible for the students involved to be able to say that they truly know what the text is all about. And so students are led to believe that they understand, for instance, Homer or Plato, or Aristotle, or Shakespeare, or the American founders, based on either reading interpretations of those texts by other people, or by very hasty readings that they were assigned in courses that had the greatest of intentions to have them reading these primary texts, but simply fail in practice because the ambitions of the professors to simply teach too much in one semester end up making the objectives of the course for the students simply impossible to achieve and often, and extremely counterproductive, those kinds of courses end up mistakenly leading their students to believe that fast-paced readings of these great books can result in sufficient or even adequate awareness of the true depths of thought that are in the books. And we have to understand that that problem right there of superficiality, and especially superficiality that doesn't believe that it's superficial, is at the very heart and in fact constitutes our current crisis as a people concerning the credentialed class, or what we all simply casually refer to as the experts. And what I mean by that is when people allow their very extensive knowledge of one particular subject to be led or guided by a partial knowledge, or what I'm referring to here as superficiality, in a different field. And so for instance, scientists talking about political problems, or politicians talking about scientific problems. In other words, the overreach of partial knowledge, superficiality, where it doesn't belong, or at the very least, must be understood as partial or superficial. And presently, in America at least, that problem is why there is an enormous amount of distrust by us as a people concerning all of our fundamental institutions, whether it's academia itself, whether it's the scientific community, whether it's the courts, or whether it's the entire political class. And it's precisely that problem that so very many of the great books 
very directly and thematically provide us teachings of. In other words, very many of the great books themselves address the problem of education, what it should be, who should receive it, and how much of it various groups of those who are to receive it should get. And moreover, their various teachings on all of that also include accounts or treatments of what will happen to the entirety of political community, any political community, if their own answers to those things become either too superficial or too abstract. And so for us, one very important way to go about thinking of the great books, and a way that's especially relevant for us today, and always and everywhere relevant for parents concerning their children, is that very many of the problems that we face today can be much better understood by us if we take the reading of these great books much more seriously than we presently do. But I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm not suggesting that deep, serious readings of the great books are for everyone, nor am I saying that the great books are the solution to so very many problems in our world today. But what I am saying is that for some people, and in particularly very talented and ambitious people, the great books are for them and for those people. A deeper and more serious reading of the great books could absolutely assist them and in an extremely powerful way if they seek to become the kind of people who do take as their task any number of the enormous and seemingly overwhelming problems that we're dealing with right now. And so recognizing that, and especially the urgency of the consequences if that is not recognized by us, is absolutely foundational to my project with the Athens Corner website. And so what that means to begin with here, with the approach that I provide to the great books through my Athens Corner website, is that my approach is a very careful and meticulous direct engagement with the texts, and very often with the primary languages that the texts are written in, such as Greek or German, because in many cases, inadequate translations can, and in fact very often have, led to very poor and inadequate interpretations of the thinkers themselves that have found their way into popular culture. And the great danger there is that we as a people that is so thoroughly immersed in popular culture end up with very poor and inadequate understandings of ourselves as a people. And all of that is just a way of me saying that to begin with, the approach that I provide to the great books through my Athens Corner website emphasizes learning how to slow down in our reading in order that we learn how to look at less and be able to see so much more. And the best example that I provide of what that looks like in practice is my recent discussion of Homer's Iliad, titled Eros, Honor, and the Shield of Achilles. And that particular recording, which I've made free for everyone, also demonstrates another aspect of my approach, because that recording is just one in an entire series devoted to a particular theme that we can find throughout the great books, and in that case, it's the Technology and Nihilism series that I'm doing. And whereas that particular series looks at one particular theme in a number of the great books, I also have entire series solely devoted to an individual great book, like Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and very soon Plato's Laws, where I show from very patient readings throughout the entire series the way in which so many amazing themes, like Technology and Nihilism, can be found in individual texts. And so on the one hand, there are very specific themes that we're all familiar with today. And I go through many of the great books showing how we can find them with very patient readings. And then on the other hand, I have entire series devoted to a single great book 
in which I show through a patient reading how so many of the themes that we recognize today come tumbling out of that individual book. And so with all of that being said, then the question might be something like this. Okay, I like the sound of all that, but since you're the one doing the teaching, I'd like to know a little more about you. And the answer to that question, my background, or my story, is interesting, but also a cautionary tale. It wasn't until about my junior year in high school that I even cared about school. And the only reason for this was because I ended up in a class with a teacher who was just a really, really inspirational guy. It was a really small town, a really poor town, and so it was one of those situations where it wasn't really expected that any of us were going to go anywhere or do anything great. And so just getting us to graduate was itself a big accomplishment. But this particular teacher was a retired coach. And while he was supposed to be teaching us math, he spent most of his time inspiring us to simply expect better from ourselves. And for whatever reason, that resonated with me. And because he was a math teacher, I wanted to impress him by showing that I could learn the math that he was trying to teach us. And I ended up driving to a bookstore in the city and getting a few books on various kinds of math. Things like Algebra 1 and 2, Precalculus, and Trig. And I spent all my time working through those books simply because he had inspired me to expect more for myself. And I'll never forget spending things like Thanksgiving holiday break and Christmas holiday break absolutely buried in those books. And all because I had this very decent, very honorable man impressing upon all of us pretty much every day to know that when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we only have ourselves to blame if we don't like what we've become. And I thought that it would be the greatest thing in the world to go off to college and get a degree in math and become a math teacher in a small town like the one that I had grown up in and hopefully be able to inspire students the way that he was able to inspire me. And the significance of his inspiration in my life is really at the source of my Fathers and Sons series on the Athens Corner website. But what happened when I went off to college is that I loved the opportunity to study all of this advanced math so much that I didn't want to waste any of my time taking courses that were required to become a teacher, learning all kinds of nonsense about pedagogy that I thought was at best irrelevant, and in any case, taking time away from me to be able to take more of the advanced math courses. And I was doing so well in the math department, and a few of the professors liked me so much because they loved that I just wanted to learn, that they admitted me early into the PhD program. And so there I was pursuing a PhD in mathematics. And I really loved applied math because I thought mathematical physics was just beautiful. Everything from the differential geometry required of something like relativity theory to the theoretical analysis of numbers themselves that's required to just get calculus up and running, regardless of whether it's single variable or multivariable. But it was especially with that theoretical analysis of numbers that began to steer me in the direction of philosophy. And my advisor at the time was French, and his wife taught in the history department. And it's simply customary among the French that if they have a spouse at the university in a different department, and if you're their student, then you take the courses that both of them offer. And so I ended up with a double major in math and history while pursuing a PhD in math. But my interest in the theoretical foundations of numbers, along with reading all of the history that I was doing, kept leading me more and more towards philosophy. Because studying what the mathematicians had to say about those things, and reading what the historians had to say about what the philosophers were saying on those topics, wasn't enough because all roads kept leading to what the philosophers had to say about these things. 
And because the department didn't have any kind of specialty in the philosophy of mathematics, or what we might otherwise think of as set theory, and in combination with the fact that I really didn't have anything else going on in my life, I ended up taking a bunch of philosophy courses at the university in conjunction with the courses I was taking in the math department. And as a practical matter, that's something you're just not really allowed to do, and for understandable reasons. And so the math department told me I had to make a decision. It was either math or philosophy. And I chose philosophy. And in doing so, I started from the very beginning, and I took all the courses they had, and it just so happened that there was an amazing man in the philosophy department who really caught my attention. Because when he spoke, you just knew that you were in the presence of very, very impressive knowledge. And he was a really great guy. And he helped me in all kinds of ways to get caught up with all the kinds of things that I had missed from not having been a philosophy major. And it also just so happened that he had two friends in the political science department who were every bit as impressive in their knowledge of philosophy as he was. And so I had left the math PhD program, and there I was taking every single course that this particular professor in the philosophy department offered, and every single course that his two friends in the political science department were offering on political philosophy. And after a few years, I had exhausted all the courses that they teach, but I didn't want to stop learning. And so I was very, very fortunate to have those three people help me to get into an amazing PhD program in philosophy at a separate university. And the only reason it was so amazing was because there was one particular professor in the philosophy department who was just amazing. And he was kind enough to accept me as one of his students within the PhD program in philosophy. And not only that, but he helped me to do something that was almost unheard of, but applicable in my particular case. It turns out that the political philosophy department at that university where I was now getting my PhD in philosophy was simply outstanding. And here I need to emphasize that it was a political philosophy department and not a political science department. And what that means is that it was all philosophy all the time and absolutely none of the various and innumerable kinds of quantitative courses that are premised in various economic, sociological, and historicist theories and ideologies that plague political science departments and greatly diminish them from the grandeur that used to be the study of politics. And while the entire graduate school was entirely based in the great books, it was the political philosophy department more than any of the other departments that taught entire courses on only one book at a time. And because they specialized in classical political philosophy, namely, and with particular specialty, Herodotus, Thucydides, Plato, Xenophon, Aristotle, Plutarch, Shakespeare, Machiavelli, Hobbes, Locke, and Tocqueville, and also because my own specialty in the philosophy department was also classical philosophy, I was allowed to take courses from both departments, as many as I wanted, and that's extremely rare. Normally, when you're in a PhD program, you're only allowed to take, at most, two courses from other departments. And it turned out, once again, that it just so happened within that political philosophy department, there was an absolutely amazing professor, and I took every single one of his courses. And so my story is that from beginning with a lack of guidance, I somehow managed to be fortunate enough, or blessed really, to have been able to be the student of five 
truly amazing professors. Now, let me emphasize, I was by no means the best of their students, but nothing they ever taught was wasted on me. And so while I don't know if any of them would ever want to claim me as a student, I'm absolutely honored to claim them as having been my professors. And so there you have my story, from its beginning in a mathematics PhD program to its conclusion in what can only be described as a collaborative effort, or really the best of both possible worlds, of a great philosophy PhD program and an even better political philosophy PhD program. And I bring all of that with me to bear on the various great books that I teach here through my Athens Corner website. And so I hope that this has been really helpful for you in deciding if you want to become a subscriber. And I really hope you join me, because regardless of whatever your own journey is, I would truly love to help you along the way.